Okay, so in this episode of the Leadersmith podcast, we're going to be talking to Jeff Carlucci again. Jeff, as if you've if you followed the podcast, has been on the show a number of times before, and we're going to be talking about leadership lessons that come from British literature. Stay tuned. In a world of incompetent bosses, micromanagers, and petty tyrants. One management professor claims that he can help you become the kind of leader that you would want to follow. You are listening to The Leadersmith. Now, here is your host, Darren Gertis. Okay, so as I was talking about in the introduction, Jeff Carlucci is back. One of the pleasures of having a podcast is I get to choose whoever I want to talk to. Disclaimer, Jeff is uh, my children's godparents. He was the English teacher across the hall when I was teaching history and government and economics at a little classical Christian school in Chesapeake, Virginia. Uh, he's a great friend. Um, I, I miss him terribly because he's in Virginia and I'm in South Carolina and I've been here for 10 years, actually longer than that because I was at Liberty for uh, six years before that. So it, it's been uh, too long. Anyway, so I was saying I, I've been prodding him. Okay, so when are you coming back on the on the podcast? And well, let me think about what, what I want to you know, talk about because he knows that we're talking about leadership things. So he put his his thinking cap on and he came up with a handful of leadership lessons that are actually, as you described it, what character lessons, but they apply. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so he'll talk about those and we'll see how many we get through in, in our time together. So, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Darren. And uh, just to reiterate, you are one of my best friends and I I'm so thrilled to be able to be on here with you. And I am an avid listener. I think I've listened to every one of your episodes and I get a lot out of them. So thank you for what you do. I think this is, uh, you are making quite a difference. You know, what's better, better than that, better than that you're a listener is that my kids started listening to it. So if, if nobody else at all listen to it. My kids are listening to it. So I'm like putting out the best things that I understand about how leadership works and they're listening to it. So, um, I, you know, if anybody else is listening, good on you. I'm glad that you're listening yeah. and benefiting from it. But if for no other reason, that's worth all the effort that goes into this. So um, I'm glad that, that that you do listen. If you don't, um, <laughs> I'm probably in trouble, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but thank you. So I was um, really intrigued once we started talking about you were looking for lessons or leadership from different areas of literature. And we've gone back and forth, as you've said, about what we could talk about. And actually, as I am in school now, we are preparing for students to come in about a week. And I started considering what I was teaching and the different lessons that I to teach. Uh, you mentioned I teach at a Christian school. So I get to, as a follower of Christ, of course, that informs the way I read literature. Mm -hmm. Thinking about what I was going to tell the students, and I thought, wow, these could be really ex um, extrapolated and applied to leadership. Mm -hmm. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to dive right into the first. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah. I really like the way that you're tracking with that and trying to think like what, what actually applies. And, you know, character is so fundamental leadership that you, you, you see it again and again. Military officers will talk about how or Warren Buffett or whoever, like people in high places where they've experienced a lot of leadership talk about how character is fundamental to leadership. So I, I have no doubt that you've come up with some good stuff. Well, I hope so. We'll find out by the end of the show. So 
The first one I want to talk about is Beowulf. I think most of your listeners probably have heard about Beowulf. It's a, a Anglo-Saxon poem that was probably was orally passed down through many generations, finally put into print somewhere between 800 and 1000 BC. Mm-hmm. And Beowulf is this great hero and he has uh, conquered. And if you know the story, I'm gonna go quickly through it. He defeats Grendel. He defeats Grendel's mother, and he is getting all kinds of glory. Now, in the Anglo-Saxon society, the ruling motive for most of their lives was getting glory. That was the most important thing. So he is gaining glory. He has come from a place called Yeatland or Geatland to the Danes, and he's helped Hrothgar, the king of the Danes, to defeat these two monsters. Okay, can I stop you and ask you some qualifying yes. questions? Yes, sir. My daughter is in classical conversations, and this year, she just, like last week, she just read Beowulf. Okay. And so we were talking about it in the car on the way to the homeschool co-op thing. Uh, and uh, so, one, Grenville, what is Grenville exactly? I read it, but I, I wasn't exactly sure. So, Grendel. Gren- it, Grendel. It's a monster. So, we'll back up. Rothgar is the king of the Danes. Right. They have set up this great mead hall, Herat, where they celebrate their victories. Their celebration awakens Grendel, who was supposed to be an offspring of Cain, supposedly. So we have the good versus evil. And Grendel comes in at night and kills 30 Danes. And then this happens over and over again. Now, Legend has it that the Grendel may have been for them malaria, representative of malaria, or believe it or not, bear, a large bear or bears that would come in at night, kill the malaria. You go to bed and all of a sudden you wake up and these people have died from malaria. So that may be what it represents. Grendel sounded like some kind of monster. It was, it wasn't. It is. So, yeah, so I couldn't figure out what kind of monster it was, like a dragon or something. I mean, who knows at the time? It's interesting. Um, I don't know that he's being very, or whoever wrote it, is being very clear about the kind okay. of monster. So I'm not the only one that, I mean, yeah, okay. And uh, then he, Beowulf, now Gracie and I were talking about this on the way to that homeschool co-op. He, I, I said, oh, he's he's Danish. No, he, he went to De- Denmark, but he yeah. came from where? Where did he actually come from? Okay, it's Geatland, or that's how I say it. Others will say Yateland, but it's G-E-A-T-L-A-N-D. And Which for, is where? I don't know. I'm not Does sure. anybody know? That is. I suppose so. You know, <laughs> I haven't seen it. And for the story, it doesn't necessarily matter. Okay, so at any rate, to the moral of the story, so when Gracie and I were talking about it, he's like, well, he's not really that great of a leader. He's kind of arrogant. And that well, was Gracie's takeaway. Is that... <laughs> Are we That's exactly where we're going. Mm. Good, good, Gracie. Proud All of right. For the record, I want to say that Gracie is smart. And since she's probably going to listen to this anyway, I mean, I figure you might as well say it, right? Absolutely. So let's get right to the lesson. So Beowulf has defeated these two monsters, Grendel and Grendel's mother. Mm-hmm. And now they're celebrating. And Rothgar, the old king, Rothgar is much older than Beowulf. He's the king of the Danes. He pulls Beowulf aside and goes through this very long speech. 
But right in the middle of the speech, three word sentence, he looks at him and says, push away pride. Mm. And we pull that out and talk about that in class. He's telling him, push away pride because that could be your downfall. And ultimately at the end of the book, it is his downfall. He leads, he, Beowulf goes back to Geatland. He leads for 50 years and there's a dragon, a fire breathing dragon who starts to attack his people. Mm-hmm. He's 85 years old or so. He has plenty of warriors, but because he desires glory, he can't push away the pride. Yeah. He's not capable of defeating the dragon. He is mortally wounded. And what's interesting is the author gives us a foil, uh, a character named Wiglaf, W-I-G-L-A-F, who is Beowulf's nephew, cousin. And Wiglaf actually is there to help Beowulf defeat the dragon, but gives Beowulf all the credit, says he did nothing, and walks in that humility. And he is then made the next leader of the Geats. But the pushing away pride. So that Gracie was right on it. Yeah. His pride wouldn't let him allow others to do what he said I should be able to do. So what's the lesson for a leader? Pride is, I mean, the Bible says it, you know, pride will lead to your downfall. Humility comes before honor. So be humble. If others are good at something or better than you, in fact, I think a hallmark of a good leader is surrounding himself or herself with better talent. And if you can bring that talent in, allow them to do the things that they can do. So for yeah, me, you know, they that, will that is push away pride. Because we were just taught, my, uh, my wife and I were just talking about this with pride. We're watching the news and we're looking at what's going on in Afghanistan, right? I mean, the power vacuum that was created and Biden's press conference and, um, <laughs> and, and he doubles down on this. And I, I, I was quoting Robert Gates, who said uh, Biden has been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy question for the last 40 years. Um, wow. yeah. <laughs> and in the Senate, you can look at where, you know, what his positions were and as opposed to what's going on in the world. And now I'm not trying to turn this political or anything. But so why is like, you know, generals are telling him one thing and he's doing something else. And so my wife and I were just having this conversation talking about like, why is that? And this was two days ago. We were just talking about how um, like it's it's weird, but leaders get this strange hubris, right? They just, I mean, to the, the, the higher they rise, the less tethered they seem to reality. Okay. That's true of presidents. Okay. So I I remember like um, the Romans talking about, remember you're mortal, remember you're mortal, right? Talking, there's somebody talking to the Roman emperor uh, saying, remember you're mortal. And and it's like, you need that because you, you develop this weird pride, this weird hubris, the higher you rise. There was this great um, line created for that. Steve Jobs had what was called that reality distortion field around him. Like he just thought, well, no, I mean, I'm right. And we can just make this work. Now, sometimes that works, but sometimes it doesn't. And it's not just true of uh, Beowulf. It's not just true of Steve Jobs. It was true of Hitler. Hitler was right about so many things that he got right that he was when he was wrong, he was very wrong and thought he could hold out and was overrun by the Russians and and committed suicide. So it's like the higher you rise, you have more of this susceptibility to pride. Power corrupts 
and absolute power corrupts absolutely, said Lord Acton. Yes. So th this is absolutely a crazy important lesson for anybody in leadership. So what was the phrase that he was told? Pride. Push away pride. Push away pride. I mean, <laughs> that that's a great lesson. Okay. Well, it's a great lesson for all leaders, even if you're leading yourself or mm -hmm. you're leading a family or leading one other person. All right. So let's move on to John Milton, arguably the greatest writer in the English language, definitely 1A and 1B with Shakespeare. John Milton is known for writing primarily Paradise Lost. And Paradise Lost is considered to be one of the greatest writings, greatest poems in the English language. Mm -hmm. Milton went blind prior to writing Paradise Lost. Wow. Yeah, it was fascinating. And he actually writes a great sonnet about it his, on his blindness. And in the sonnet, he almost gets angry with God. He said, how can you de deny my ability to do what you've called me to do? Mm. And he's, you know, I, I can't do this. But then he, he settles down and he's at the very end, he has the famous line and he says, God doesn't need either man's gifts or his talents. They also serve who only stand and wait. And he recognized that his job was to serve God regardless of situation. But we already said that he did write Paradise Lost after going blind. So what does he do? He wakes up about three or four in the morning he has it. He composes lines in his mind, and, it's, and his a secretary comes in. He dictates it. Next morning, wakes up, composes lines. Okay, read back that to me. Okay, and here are the next lines. And what it did was, he didn't get to just listen. I mean, look at the words. He had to hear mm -hmm. the words, but he heard the sound of every letter. And so we have. Uh, each letter flowing to the next in a way that would not have been necessary or maybe even uh, capable, able if he hadn't gone blind. My professor in college, um, Dr. Crawley, he looked at us as a gentleman. It was an all-male school, Hamden Sydney College, go Tigers. And he said, gentlemen, read Milton. It just feels good in your mouth, meaning it flows naturally. So I contend that Milton's writes Paradise Lost, which may be the greatest thing ever written, not despite the fact that he went blind, but because he went blind. Hmm. So what's the lesson for leadership? Sometimes there are obstacles in your road and those obstacles, you, by pushing through them, you refine what it is you're doing, whether it's your product, your skills, your talents, your character, so that on the other side, there is a height, there is something you can reach that's even beyond what you thought. Mm -hmm. And if you also, and as followers of Christ, if you trust God that what he's put in front of you, you push through, you can trust on the other side. There is something you probably didn't anticipate that's be a benefit to you and as a leader to those that you lead. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so uh, as you were talking, I was thinking of Beethoven going deaf and still writing amazing stuff after. I think Handel uh, also had something with deafness. I, I don't remember exactly who it was, but I know Beethoven at least had that same kind of thing. Yeah. Um, was it uh, uh, Stonewall Jackson had something with like uh, eyesight or something? I think so, yeah. He would memorize his lectures at VMI because he, just, he couldn't, 
couldn't read it. I think it was like a nearsighted something or farsighted. He was farsighted, but couldn't read nearsighted or something. I don't remember what it was, but same kind of thing. And they have to overcome the obstacles anyway. So that that's, that's a powerful uh, leadership lesson. Yeah. Um, and life's not fair. And if you think no. it is, then you're going to be sorely disappointed when life bumps up against you and you go, Whoa, what's going yeah. on? And you just have to overcome and adapt. And I, I know that the default in society right now is I'm not responsible. Somebody else is responsible for my happiness or what you, you got to change so that I, I study leaders. I study success and the people who are really successful, man, they're the kind of people that take responsibility for everything that they do and others. Like I, I remember one guy talking about, I wish I could find the, the reference to this. It was like, if it rains, it's my fault. <laughs> like no it's not really your fault but yes you have to brace against it you have to have the umbrella you have to be prepared for what you're going to do if you yeah. have to be outside and you should be inside or what like it's your responsibility like the way he said it was a little you know tongue-in-cheek but you have to be responsible for whatever the circumstances are going to be and deal with it and contend with it so what a great lesson yeah all right so let's go to another one um Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote a poem that's incredibly famous. And I guess I should have said this before. Everything I'm telling you, these are famous. And I'm not the first one to come up with these ideas. It's just something that I get to teach. And you get to let you let me talk to you about it. Well, absolutely. But, you know, to our audience, like to even to me, the Beowulf, I missed that line about pride. That's great. What what a great great lesson! So don't yeah. don't discount yourself. You're curating some of the best material here, and we appreciate that. Good. So Tennyson writes Ulysses. Ulysses is Odysseus from the Homer the Homer book poems. In Ulysses, one of the most famous lines that Tennyson ever wrote are at the end. But let me just set this up. Ulysses is old. He actually says, "I am old." Uh, he's I'm. We're going to guess he's eighty, and. He hates being the leader of a peaceful nation. He says, my son, Telemachus, he can do that. I'm not good at that. I'm going to go out and I'm going to find adventure. And so he's talking to his sailors. And I'm going to just pop over and read to you the last several lines of this. He says, and he's talking to all the old sailors. He's looking at his ship and he's looking at the ocean. And he says, though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. I love that line. We may not be what we used to be, but what we are, we are. And for me, when I was, so what I talked to the students about, of course, I am getting old. Um, somebody told me I should stop saying it, but I'm going to be 62 next month, Darren. I mean, life is pushing on. Thank God things are good, but I'm not 22. I still coach soccer. I cannot do on the pitch now with my team what I could do 40 years ago. But that which we are, we are. And as a leader, or as I tell my kids, you are, your strengths are going to change. When you're young, as Odysseus said, we just moved earth and heaven. But now we are made a little weaker. But now, and he's saying, we have wisdom. We have understanding. We have a context. 
There are those things that we can do now, which doesn't mean we still can't accomplish. So I actually had a chance to speak to my parents' senior group at their church a couple of years ago, and we talked about this. I'm 62. My parents are in their 80s. It's not time to give up. As a follower of Christ, God didn't say, oh, you go to 65 and you're on your own. No, I may not do what I could do before, but I can still do something and I still have gifts. I guess what I want to, the lesson for leadership is almost a twofold one. Persevere and don't dis, don't artificially discount your abilities because you can't do what you used to do. There are new ways to approach things and you have new strengths. And I guess the second is almost like the first. I'm all, I'm cognizant, I'll be 62, of this artificial ending of what we are doing to say, oh, I guess it's time to retire. The number says I'm 65, 67, 70. And I think we have to be careful to continue to follow in, whether it's the calling or whether it's a responsibility, knowing that we are given something of value to do as leaders. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that was the lesson from that. Yeah, it, you know, it's a, it's interesting how you put these back to back because it's still overcoming an obstacle like yeah. in the last lesson. lesson. Um, here, there's just like a compensating mechanism. So as you were talking, I'm thinking about this in, in myself. And I remember my 20... <laughs> kind of a punk 20 year old I mean I don't mean punk rocker but like punk like attitude like cocky kind of attitude and I look back at my 20 year old self like oh what was I what was I thinking yeah and I had certain abilities that I don't have now or not to the same degree or it takes me extra time to to recover physically yeah. right but I know a whole lot more than I knew then and I'm better off for what I know. Now we're in a business in education where you get better over time. I mean, until I mean, unless you get dementia, you right. you get better and better and better every year until the very end, right? Yeah, so there's yeah. that. I mean, so the, the idea of thinking about how to compensate and do it differently in order to do it better, it it, it applies to everything too. It applies like. You know, sometimes people think that to be a good leader, you have to be an extrovert. Introverts right. can be awesome leaders yeah. as long as they ar- arrange their circumstance and their environment so that they can stand in their strengths. And same thing with age or with whatever it is that you have or whatever abilities you have. I remember my first year there at Stonebridge, uh, I followed an incredible teacher, Gay Ferdon. Yeah. And I remember thinking it took a, it took a couple months, but I remember thinking I kept hearing like, "Well, you're not Miss Ferdon," <laughs> and, and I I remember distinctly thinking, "Well, that's true. She's not Darren Gertis either." Like, and I didn't mean that in a cocky way. I just meant I bring certain gifts and skills and abilities to the table that she doesn't have either. And we have to think in that way. Like, how are you gifted? How are you geared in order to maximize you to sing your high notes? Yeah. yeah. Right. When I say sing high notes. I have a beautiful voice for about three notes. <laughs> After that, I should not be going above or below it because it just doesn't sound right at all. But for those three notes, I'm awesome, right? I, I seriously, I can sing. With, so if I can sing a song within that range, I'm great. Yeah. But I know myself well enough. Like we've talked about this, I, yes. I know myself, yeah. right? I know myself well enough to know that's where I have to stay. And. I I stay within that, within whatever I talk about. I'm talking about leadership. I'm not talking about what's under the hood of my car because I'm lost. I'm hopeless. 
Yeah. So that's a great lesson for all leaders. I've always respected that ab- about you, even because I knew you were in your late 20s, not to, not when you were a 20-year-old punk. Always had an understanding of what it was that you should do and what you should not do to accomplish what God had for you. You've always exemplified that. And I, th- I don't think there's any world-class leader anywhere who deviates from that. Not, yeah. not to my knowledge. From what I've read, from what I understand, everything that I have uh, spent my time trying to understand about leadership, they know themselves and they sing their high notes and they try not to get out of that range. I mean, there's there's something to be said for expanding and growing and learning, that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about they stay within their, their scope of competence and, and uh, are very hawkish about doing that. Yeah. So the next lesson... It, to me, it's a little. It moves me a little bit more. So far, we've talked about pushing away pride. We've talked about perseverance in in two different manners. The next one is from Wordsworth, and it's a poem. And I want to read a portion of it to you. It's called "She Dwelt Among the Untrodden Ways." Actually, it's so short. I'm going to read the whole thing. She dwelt among the untrodden ways beside the springs of Dove, a maid whom there were none to praise and very few to love. A violet by a mossy stone, half hidden from the eye, fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. This is the key. She lived unknown, and few could know when Lucy ceased to be, but she is in her grave, and oh, the difference to me. And when we talk to the students about this, we talk about not measuring your success by numbers. And this one, we lead. I lead a class. I led my family. I get to lead a life group. I, ha- I can tell you I have 18 in this class and 30. But what this is telling me is there may be one person that you impact. And, and as a leader of an organization, you may lead a lot, but there's that one person that maybe gets in the way or there is one person, what Wordsworth is talking about, and I think he's talking about, we're not really sure who, this is a Lucy poem. Lucy, we think, is a conglomeration of several people. Most, I like to think of this as his his sister who had passed away and they lived by the, the Dove River. When she died, he said, almost nobody knew. You didn't really impact anybody else, but oh my goodness, you impacted me and change my life forever. As a teacher, if we could have that one person that looks at me, looks at you and looks at me and says, you impacted my life forever, what a difference. So, okay, so what, what you were just saying, I heard the poem and I kind of zone there for a little bit what I was trying to follow what the point is yeah. this is not my expertise and I don't this is why you're here right you're you're unpacking this help help me see the line again that connects that to the if you can just help one person what what line specifically okay. so I am extrapolating a lesson out of this so the last four lines uh-huh she lived unknown and few could know when Lucy ceased to be so there we're seeing her influence was very, very minimal. Mm-hmm. A huge funeral. Nobody really knew her well. She wasn't famous. But, and this is, so you get, but she is in her grave. And oh, the difference to me. Oh. So we see that. And he's saying, nobody really knew her. 
and nobody really, she wasn't famous. She didn't accomplish a lot, but her relationship, the impact she had on me, what a difference. Now he's saying she's in the grave and now my life is different, but I think that's easily changeable to my life is different because Because of her. Yeah. And so I think as a leader, it's what makes when a student comes in my room during a planning bill and I've got a boatload to do that the administrator has given me and they just need to talk for 10 minutes and they're in the way of my plans. You just stop and you give them that 10 minutes because you actually, as teachers and you know this and as leaders, you actually have no idea what eight to 10 minutes in somebody's life can mean. So that's what I'm saying. So the lesson that I thought would be great for your listeners as leaders do not discount the disturbances in your plan and your schedule. Do not discount the people that come in your way and the impact you can have on one person or your business is not impacting a lot. You're not having great success according to the world, according to money, maybe according to size. But are you having success in the life of a person? Uh, and I have talked over the years, people over things. And this is a people everything stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So I, as you were talking through that one, I totally missed the point of the poem itself, which is why I, you know, that's why you do what you do. I, I read it pretty that. quickly. Yeah, I, I went when, through it quickly. When you unpacked it, I understood what you were saying. And sometimes leaders discount themselves because our people, uh, let's just say generally people discount themselves as leaders because they, they think they have to be Steve Jobs or president so-and-so or have that title of leader. No, you're affecting people like my my parents still affect me. Yes. Like you never yeah. you never stop. You never relinquish that. Right. Yeah. I'm cognizant. Like you were talking about the 10 minutes and I don't always do this because my kids will be listening to this. I'm admitting right up front. Sometimes I'm just tired or too shot to be able to do it and grouchy and whatever. No, just go leave me alone. We'll talk tomorrow. But I'm cognizant of even time in the car. Yeah. Right. As we're on the way to somewhere, that's that's not time to be squandered. That's time where they still want to talk about whatever it is. And let's how how can i minute and as a homeschooler you're you're aware that it's a constant thing it's not just i'm learning here at school no you're learning all the time in whatever we're doing and that time the intentionality of that you're ministering and you're speaking into somebody's life has to be there yeah. all the time and and again you fall flat you're not perfect but you you still think more in that way than not and that you never know where the result is from that kind of thing. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, by the way, and I and I said this the first time that that you and I did a podcast together. Um, but I learned the greatest leadership lesson yeah. I've ever learned from this man, Jeff Carlucci, who taught me my first year teaching, probably the most valuable leadership lesson I've ever learned, which was I am not teaching my subject matter, I'm teaching students. And that changed everything for me. So I'm not teaching history and government and econ. I'm not, that's not, that's not it. I'm teaching people about that subject. So it's like the direct and indirect object kind of thing. I'm, yeah. Fact, yeah. Nerd out with some, with the English teacher. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm teaching about, I'm teaching them about this subject. And so yeah, I mean, when I, once I got that, I'm ministering to people, 
wow, it changed everything. And that's true for all leaders. You're leading people in the context of the organization, trying to get them to meet their goals, but you're dealing with them. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So so thank you for that again. And uh, that that's you're another welcome. great lesson. Now, here's the thing. I am now at about a half hour and I've tried desperately to keep this to a half hour. So um, let's continue in part B, if you if we can do that. OK. okay? In the next episode. And so we'll just pick up right where we are and go from there. Is that okay? Sounds great. Thank okay. you. I love it. Thanks.